Hello, hello. Hey, up. What's up? What's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, Pubiets. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. We have a great episode for today with an incredibly interesting and talented guest, writer of the novel No Heaven for Good Boys. Keisha Bush joins the show. Keisha Bush is the prototypical guest for Any Given Runway because she is imaginative and knowledgeable and she has a diverse background. And on top of that, not only does she love to travel, but she appreciates the gifts that visiting a new country provides. In 2004, Keisha upped the stakes and moved 5,000 miles away to Dakar, Senegal, where she merged her corporate experience with a role in the international development sector. Six years later, after returning to New York City, she would flip the coin again, embarking on a writing career. She was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and she received her MFA in creative writing from the New School, where she was a Riggio Honors Teaching Fellow and recipient of the NSPE Dean Scholarship. Her new book, No Heaven for Good Boys, is set in Senegal and is a modern-day Oliver Twist mediation on the power of love and the strength that can emerge when we have no other choice but to survive. On today's episode, Keisha talks about her new book and how her experiences in West Africa inspired the book and helped shape much of the plot. Keisha also shares with us how doubt affects her writing and what she does to power through those moments of uncertainty. Finally, Keisha chats about another travel experience she had in which she traveled six weeks to a prominent European city and one of my favorite cities. Really, really enjoyed the conversation with Keisha. Before the interview officially started, we had already had a long conversation. She's someone with a tremendously positive energy. You can feel it. And her open-mindedness and willingness to learn from others is something I truly admire. Lots of fun chatting with her, and I'm thrilled for you guys to meet her. So let's go ahead and bring on author, writer, traveler, and so much more, Keisha Bush. And let's learn. You know, it's really, it's interesting because on my Instagram page, I have taken a lot of the photos that I had taken back then. And because my novel, No Heaven for Good Boys, um, is a fictional account of a human rights crisis uh, that is happening in Senegal and West Africa, um, I'm able to like go back into those memories and share these stories and if they're, you know, if people are tapping in, you know, re- listening to your podcast and coming here and reading your book, um, I know there must be a lot of travelers doing that. But like, if there's anyone who is thinking about traveling, what I think so many of us have realized during the pandemic is when life gets to a point where you can't um, dictate your day to day where you go. So maybe when you get older, or if you have an accident, or somehow you, you, you come to the space where you're not able to explore the world, those memories have been everything for me right now. Mm-hmm. They have been getting me through some of the roughest days. Um, in t- 2019, I just said, you know what? Things are really stressful here in New York City. And I went to Paris for six weeks. Oh, and wonderful. And I had like my agent and folks like, oh, must be nice. And I'm like, yeah, it is. You know, and I spent all my money, like all my savings were was gone. But 
when I think about, you know, I came back in August, I had all this cheese and bread for folks, you know, like went on this picnic and, and wine. And when I think about how less than six months later, we were on this like severe lockdown in this world that we just really didn't know. That trip to Paris has been like a lifeline for me. The pictures and the stories from West Africa have been like a mental health, spiritual, soul, uh, nourishing. I would never give it back. I would never, there's nothing, there's, there's no physical thing that is worth those experiences. It's completely well said. And I'll have to make sure I ask you about Paris coming up because it's my favorite city in, on the planet. But you're right. Travel teaches you as well that you can never get enough of what you don't need to make you happy. So buying things, consumption, you're, you're never going to be able to reach that. You know, I grew up with my great grandmother. So when I was born, she was like mid to late 80s already. And, and we lived until about 98, 99 in my family. So I had her in my life. And so from, from like day one, plus my grandmother, her daughter, and then my mother, her granddaughter. And so when I think about life and the world and, and when I, I think about like, oh, well, how would I experience this when I'm 86? How would I experience this? How would I feel when I'm 95? And I don't think in that way, like, oh, like my life is going to be over. I just, um, you still have a life at 90 is what I'm trying to say. Like people think, oh, you're, people get older, their life is over. And I'm like, actually, no, it's not, right? The, the, the vehicle, the body um, gets slower. That's what actually happens. But the desires and, and the want to do things. And I think that's also sort of motivated me to live, to live. I've read that you flipped a coin in order to embark on a writing career. So can you tell me more about that? Yes. So I, um, I had returned from West Africa where I had been working with Oxfam Great Britain. So when I went to West Africa, I wasn't work. I was with like the YMCA. I was a volunteer. Yeah. And um, from the Gambia, I decided to go to Dakar, Senegal, and I knew no French. And it's a francophone country. And then the, one of the more popular local languages is Wolof. So I knew neither. So, you know, learning that. And I just sort of networked my way into teaching English and then networked my way into working at two of the local universities and networked my way into <laughs> uh, Oxfam, Great Britain. So when I returned home, I wasn't a writer when... I went or while I was living there, I wrote really bad poetry, right? <laughs> no one knew. And when I returned, I ended up getting a job with a local nonprofit in uh, the West Village in Manhattan. And after having such a large experience in West Africa, and then when I was working for Oxfam, traveling around Europe for work, when I returned to New York to this really no- small nonprofit, I felt suffocated a little bit. And the work there was great. What I was doing there was great, but I kept trying to get them to expand. Like you need to think about more than just the folks here in New York. Like you have this potential. And they were just like, oh, 
you know, no. And, you know, I found that frustrating. It was a pretty toxic workplace to work. And so I just sat down and I said, hey, do I have any other dreams? Am I really going to work 90 hours a week for like $52,000 a year, like nonprofit? I think maybe if I was making baller money, <laughs> like, you know, working on Wall Street, I may not have come to that like moment, that epiphany so quickly within like a year and a half, two years of returning uh, from uh, a year, actually a year and a half from West Africa. And so I was just like, I couldn't think of anything. So I said, well, what did I want to be when I was a little girl? And that then, it was like president and a ballerina, you know? Um, and I was like, we have Obama, my ballerina days are over. And um, I said, oh yeah, I remember I was interested in like writing. Well, well, let's take a little writing class. And it was, I, I was torn between going back and getting my MBA. Uh, I went to business school, so my MBA was going to be in finance and entrepreneurship. Finance, I find is boring, but it's easy. Um, and it's money, right? So money to do the things I want to do in life. Or art school. Which is it? Yeah. And so I, I picked art. I was just like, let's try this. Because we can always go back and get an MBA. Yeah. And what I ended up doing on the side is running my own small business, mm -hmm. which supported myself while being a writer. And I said, hey, do I really, if I'm, if I'm supporting myself doing this, do I really need to go back and get my MBA to, yeah. be, a, to be a business owner? No. So I already have the skill set. So I sort of married the two, even though they were completely separate industries. You had mentioned that you we're not a writer, but now that you have a book, you are forever going to be known as a writer. And your, uh, your recent book is No Heaven for Good Boys. Uh, it's your most recent novel. What's the premise for the book and what inspired its creation? I like to pitch it as like a modern day Oliver Twist story mm -hmm. um, meets the Catholic scandal within Islam. Uh, and basically you have a, a teacher who teaches the, who's supposed to teach the Quran and he gets children from like small villages, brings them to the main city of Dakar. And instead of teaching them the Quran as his disciples, he forces them to beg like 12, 16 hours a day. They don't bring the money back, they're abused. And he has, because of old traditions, he, he actually has, his teachers have legal custody of the children. And when I lived in Senegal, <clears throat> Within like the first six months, seven months, I started noticing these kids. And I asked my friends about it, my local friends. And um, I pretty much became their banana girl, which I'm very proud of. So when they would see me, I was teaching English. At the time, I was broke. I would buy them bananas because it'd be like clusters of 10 to 13 boys. And so no heaven for good boys. You know, I was in... West Africa from 2004 to 2008. And the book spans roughly about a year. But what I've done is I've taken my, the nonfiction sort of structure of this happening, because it's still happening to this day as we speak. Yeah. There are up to 100,000 boys, which are called Talibay, who are suffering from 
basically modern day child slavery. And I took this, I call the scaffolding nonfiction. So when you enter No Heaven for Good Boys, you're entering Senegal circa 2004 to 2008, like the things that really happened. And then I took two fictional or these fictional accounts or fictional characters and I placed them in the nonfiction scaffolding to tell the story. And the main protagonist and his cousin, although just two boys, represent um, these boys in, in, in Senegal. Um, and the, the book is sort of split up because you get to see his parents and what they're going through back in the village. Um, and the fact that they want their son back and the obstacle of sort of trying to transcend or overcome real, real tradition and religious dogma. Yeah. As faithful, as faithful, you know, Muslims. Like, how do you, how do you, you know, it's a real tricky situation. Um, and it's so interesting because now that the book is out in the world, I'm so proud of my main characters. I'm just like, you're so brave. You're out in the world. <laughs> it's like children who send them off to college or something. Or you send them to like preschool, right? It might be like that, that I'm feeling uh, for them right now. And the, you know, the whole point of writing the book was to give these children a platform, a voice. There's only journalism out there about them. People just don't know yeah. about them at all. And to give them a platform to tell their story and to get people to just be aware of them. Um, and there, you know, there are ways to support local nonprofits um, that I, I place at the at back of the book. But I actually believe in, um, I believe in love really strongly. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe in prayer. And I, I believe that collectively, when, when, um, when people come together across the globe, that we can impact one another in such profound and beautiful and uplifting ways. But to do that, people need to know about the boys first. Yeah. You know? It was interest, interesting because I've had a few women say, well, at least it's not the girls. And I'm like, um... <laughs> How do I take that? Yeah, how do I take that as a... Yeah. First of all, children are children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? So you have these children who are taken from their families. They are beat, forced into child slavery. There is um, pedophilia. And the, here's the, the big kicker is they're not even going to school. They're not even learning the Quran, yeah. right? Um, because... The whole point of Taliban is to learn to memorize the Quran. It takes three to five years, and you are like a student, almost like a monkhood. But when you don't teach them the Quran, they don't learn it, right? And it could be 10 years. So there are some children who started off as Taliban as five, and then by around 15, 16, they're let go. What do you do with a 16-year-old boy who is disconnected from his community, his family, the sort of balance of how you treat others mm -hmm. because he's been living in a dog eat dog world um survival of the fittest just trying to find enough food 
to feed himself while collecting money and having to bring it back to this teacher who's exploited him. So now you have a 16, an angry 16 year old and he should be angry because society has failed him mm-hmm. and he has zero skill sets. Who do you think Boko Haram or these other terror groups are actually finding people? Yeah. They say, and, you know, this was um, something that was relevant back like I think like in the 80s and 90s with gang violence. Mm-hmm. You have the broken home and what does a gang say? Here goes your new family. Crime offers internships. Crime offers summer work jobs. And that's how you get someone young. Yes, that's exactly. So you pull them in and say, hey, I'm going to feed you. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to protect you. And the boys have already been living in sort of a dictatorial, tyrannical setup, right? So it's actually no different. Less are two evils. Absolutely. He's fed. And then these, you know, terror groups also say, you're going to be a good Muslim. So we're going to go get you a wife. Mm-hmm. And then they go and they like, you know, they go to these schools, they kill the boys, they kidnap the girls, you know, who are students, mm-hmm. but that threatens whatever dogma that they're trying to push. Yeah. And, and, then, and then you want, because, you know, I, I've sat and thought about it a lot. I'm like, how can anyone marry a 12-year-old girl? Well, somebody who is also just skewed, who's twisted himself, yeah. you know? And then I have dated, I have a lot of you know, ex-boyfriends, <laughs> but I've dated, you know, one of my boyfriends a few years ago was still in the military, had done a tour in Afghanistan and was sent back on a second tour. So if we think that it does not even just come back home to us, yes, it does. Like, we are all intricately linked and we have to open up our purview our our view of the world and understand that um and i think it it goes back to traveling it goes back to traveling exploring new worlds exploring new cultures challenging yourself to open up and see that like just because someone is across I want to call it the lake, the Atlantic or the Pacific or the pond, the pond, <laughs> the pond, you know, that we have more in common than we have not in common because they're just these universal things that connect us. As far as the writing process goes, where do you find inspiration, creativity? Are you someone who says, you know what, first thing I'm doing, I'm going to write and I'm going to plan. I'm going to use that time to be creative or do you just sit back and wait to be, to be hit with the creativity? Yeah, so um, I, for me, it's about bursts. Mm. Um, they come in bursts, and when the burst comes, that is all I'm thinking about and doing. Um, and life, and it's a balancing act because it's really hard for me to live in two worlds, which is why I think um, it's in bursts. Yeah. And then when the burst comes, it all comes out and it could take the shortest amount of time has been three weeks for 60,000 words to like six months for first draft. And then a little time away, like a month or two, then you go back in for revisions. So like, it's not that I'm not writing other things, but for me, I'm not that person that has a daily writing practice. I remember reading like at one point Toni Morrison while she was 
an editor um, and she started writing and she had her children, she would wake up at like five, I think, four or five o'clock in the morning. And I know other writers that do that. I'm just not. <laughs> I don't even eat breakfast because I'm asleep. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I wish. Um, but yeah, I'm more of a feeling kind of intuitive. Each project uh, comes and requires different things. So some, I, you know, I have a project that came during the day. It loves Saturdays. Right. Yeah. Um, and for that project, I would go to therapy at like 11 or noon and then go to the new school, which is where I did my master's. And even though I was a, an alumni, we could still use the buildings. And, and so I would go get lunch in the dining hall and then sit in the window on Fifth Avenue and write, you know, all day until I got a, a chapter out. Fantastic. And it was and, and that sometimes people don't realize, even if you're not writing every day, if you write once a week, but that day is dedicated to getting out whatever needs to come out, you can actually move through a manuscript pretty quickly. Yeah. You know? And I think writing in bursts like that or doing anything in bursts is great because then you, you need that time away and it prevents burnout. If you just go all out, whatever you're doing, and then just sit away for a couple of days, it does does refresh you. And shout out to Toni Morrison, the second interview of the day to reference Toni Morrison. I, I love when those type of things consistently happen. Mentally, how do you make sure you're in the right frame of mind? Because you're talking about doing these, these batches where you knock it out for a long time. But in order to do that, you got to be mentally in the right spot. So how do you avoid burnout with that? And then how do you maintain the confidence to write during periods of doubt? Mm. Um, and I don't know is an acceptable answer for the second part there. I know. <laughs> okay. So I find one way is ritual. Mm, yes. I have little rituals. I, I love, I'm into crystals, right? Um, I burn sage and, and Palo Santo. I am a meditator. So I've practiced Buddhism for 19 years now. Wonderful. And that is, it's so grounding, right, in the body. And when I am going through um, those bursts, I ensure that my life is as quiet as possible. Um, and I often have new writers say, oh, I want to start writing. I'm like, how quiet is, how quiet can you get your life to be? You know, the TVs are off, the devices are off, the family drama, you got to lock it outside, you know, like it can't come through this door or relationship drama or whatever, friend drama, um, because it's a really lonely place. Mm -hmm. Writing is so lonely. And I, I have been, I've been doing like writing retreats, writing residencies, and sometimes just doing my own like breakaway. So like in 2019, I went to Paris for six, six weeks. That is an investment in self, right? And although some people are like, oh, vacation, I'm like, this is really about breaking away from the day-to-day stresses um, to focus on the thing that is really important for me. And writing, as a writer, as an artist, you are your own business. You are an entrepreneur. And everything that you do has to somehow feed back into it, even when you clean your house, 
It's for like, let me clear up some clutter to like help balance my mind. All of these little things that we do. And so whenever I do get some money and I'm like, I'm off, <laughs> you know, go to the South of France, I'll see you all later. I see it as an investment back to myself because when I go into these spaces where there are no demands of me other than feeding myself and saying hello to others, those quiet places can really flourish and I'm able to get into my work. And in, let me tell you, doubt, that thing is so, it's, it's, it's like, it's so, it can be so thick. It's like a slice of cake just sitting there staring at you, you know, or, or, or I don't know, a weed. But in, in times of doubt, I recognize this about my writing process. All right, I'm gonna sit down, write this draft. I have no idea where it's going. A little afraid, you know, but you, you stick it through. It's finished. You reread it. You're like, this is garbage. At least I feel like that. I'm like, what is this? This is terrible. Then, you know, I go through the revision process and I take some time away and I come back and I'm like, hmm, this is actually pretty good, right? And then, and, and that goes over and over and over again mm -hmm. until like you give it to an agent. And then it happens again, and you go through those, the whole cycle of this is garbage, this is great, it's not too bad, you know? Um, and because I recognize that, that I go through this emotional roller coaster of sorts, I just, I sit with it. I told a friend, I, you know, like right now, these days, I'm really feeling my feelings, if you know what I mean. You know, and I think everyone is going through that, just feeling deeply. Our feelings are really deep right now. They're really, they're really concentrated. I think it's such an authentic answer and I appreciate it so much, especially because each of those emotions does play a role. The times where we're like, this sucks, this writing sucks. It's not meant to bash. It's meant to, to motivate, to coach, say you can do better. So those times when you're like, this sucks, whether it sucks or not is irrelevant. It's the fact that you're saying, you're better. And then it's that little glimpse of, you know what, this ain't bad. It's that coaching up that, hey, you know what, that's a patent on the back. So I think it's authentic. You spent some time living in my Disneyland, my personal happiest place on earth, Paris, France. I just feel differently when I'm there. So for you, what parts of Paris are still with you? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I, I feel really lucky. When I was a little girl, and you know, my family had never traveled anywhere, I would play that little game. There was a game that we played where, like, um, you put in three names or four names of a boy or the boy you would marry, possible mash. game. Mash. Mash. Yeah. Yes. You know, Mash was one of my favorite I might games. play Mash later today because it is yeah. so fun. I might do it later today. <laughs> I love it. And in, in um, the place for the honeymoon, age, France was one of them. I think, I think you've given me a question to ask guests from here on out. Like, if we were playing MASH, what would be your X, Y, and Z? I, I like this. Yes. <laughs> I, okay. So I, I, love, I love this. I love this right now. And so I have been lucky enough to be able to travel to France on multiple occasions. Mm -hmm. and. 
the first time, not the first time, but like my second trip was the most impactful because I got to live there for a summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sakuka, the church. Oh, oh, yeah. I go in that church and I, you know, I practice Buddhism. I go in that church and I cry. Mm-hmm. I can feel the energy and spirit when I, when I walk in that space. I've sat for um, services. And you go all the way to the top? You went all the way to the top, right? No, I always stay on the, to the first floor and light the candles. I, you, know, you know what's so interesting is although I, I, I do all this travel, I'm actually like, a li- I suffer from social anxiety. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm, introver- I'm introverted as well, so I, I feel you on that. But you've got, you've got to go to the top because all that love you have, when you go to the top, you get this splendid, um, unmatched oh. view of, of the city. Let's go to the top. Okay. When you go back. I, I will. Because I didn't even know that was possible. Uh, it might. I think it costs a couple euros to go to the top, but it is. Oh, you're right. Okay. Okay. I will. Best views of the so, city. Yeah. Okay. So Sakakur is one. The ferry, the Ferris wheel, mm-hmm. um, uh, is another. Being at the top, and I was alone. So like one of the people who worked there went on the ferris wheel with me i like have a photo he took a photo of me for me (laughs) um um another sort of thing that sticks with me is i think 2019 that trip was really magical for me um which is sometimes hard because when you first go to a place you there's so much emotion in that like initial discovery and then sometimes when you go back, you know, it's just different, even though you're looking for that same yes. nostalgia, yeah. right? But 2019 was really great because it was the first time that I had lived on the left bank. I had always stayed on the right bank. And I, lived, I was on uh, Rue Mouffetard of all places, you know, like the famous and all the writers and the Rat Pack. But I just... Um, Jardin de Luxembourg, Luxembourg Gardens mm-hmm. is my favorite gardens. Um, and I just spent a lot of time in the gardens and uh, walking to the same river and just really spending evenings and days and getting, it was fascinating because a friend of mine, he was following me one day and I said, well, I don't know where I am. And he goes, you walk so confidently. What do you mean? I'm like, I have never been to this part of Paris. I have no idea what, you know, Arrondissement that we're in. He goes, well, I was following you, Keisha. And I was like, well, I was following you, dude. You know, but I would follow him anywhere um, in the world or off the world. And so I got, I'm not really good using Google Maps. I'm not the navigator. And I'm better off not using a GPS and using either a paper map or just no map at all, and I'm okay. And what happened in 2000, the summer of 2019 is because I kept getting twisted around, I rediscovered parts of Paris mm-hmm. from that summer in 2006 when I was taking the train um, and going to these places, but I didn't understand completely how they connected by foot. Mm-hmm. And then I, so with all of my sort of like walking around the city two summers ago, whatever, I don't know how far that is. 
I got to see how it all connected. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh, it's, 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 it's so walk, it's more walkable than I even thought it was. But it was, a, it was such a great rediscovery of this nostalgia from a different perspective. It's a French word, flaneur, someone who learns a city by walking around. Yeah, absolutely. You're a flaneur. Um, and I got to say, everything you felt towards Sacre Coeur, I feel that towards Notre Dame. When, you, when I walk in there, there's just, it's just something, something about it. Something about it. Yes. Yeah. So my very first trip was the summer, not the summer, the New Year's from 2002 to 2003. And I went with two really close girlfriends of mine, our first time, well, two of us, our first time in Paris. And I had the response to Sacre Coeur and my two girlfriends had their resp- the response to Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really, is really fascinating. Yeah. But I have to say, I visit Notre Dame every time I'm in have the city. To. Have to, yeah. Right? There's just something about it. And the fire, I think it was 2018, because when I went in 2019, it was all boarded up, mm-hmm. um, was like so devastating and to the point that there had to be articles about like, why is the world so tragically in mm-hmm. grief over Notre Dame? Yeah. Because it was very, very real. It was visceral, yeah. you know? Um, everyone's response, you, you were just like heart stricken. Yeah. I was to say it was, but it is my favorite building on the planet. I love that. Can we do this again soon? Yes. Okay. I got tons more to ask you and just to chat with you about. So I, I want to leave you with how can people stay up to date with your career and how can they pick up the book? Um, to stay up to date, you can find me either at KeishaBush.com. I have a website, first and last name. You can find me on Instagram where I'm most, po- most active. And that's just at Keisha Bush. I did not realize people had fancy names on Instagram. And so I thought it was kind of corny back when I did it, but now it's perfect to yeah. find me. Um, I'm not as active on Twitter, but I am on there as Keisha B. And um, yeah, and you can get the book at, uh, let's see, there are some great indie bookstores like Magic City Books in Tulsa, Harvard Bookstore, or Quarter Square Books in Boston, uh, The Strand or McNally Jackson uh, in New York City, uh, Elliott Bay Company in Seattle, Books and Books in Florida. So I'm, I'm really excited. Or Barnes & Noble and at last resort, Amazon. <laughs> I, I appreciate the hierarchy of book, book locations. So I appreciate that. And I love, and last was always last resort. Unfortunately, it seems like we use last resort too much, but yes, put that at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This was, this was fantastic. It's so much fun. Thank so you much so fun. much, Randall. We'll do it again soon, but thank you so much for today. Made my day. Thank you, Randall. Yeah. Bye. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Much appreciation to Keisha. Looking forward to doing it again. Be sure to scoop up her book, No Heaven for Good Boys, easily one of my favorite books that I've read this spring. And for more information, check out KeishaBush.com. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, 
Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Adiento. Randall has become like, you know, New York's favorite son. <laughs>